What do Jews really think of Gentiles? With Jews in the news yet again, as they are so often, dominating headlines, the war in Israel, the rise of anti-Semitism, so all the big questions, the timeless questions come up. What is the root of anti-Semitism? Why are the world so obsessed with Jews? Why are Jews hated so much and respected by others? But a question that's less often asked is what Jews really think about Gentiles. On one hand, the amount of persecution, genocides, expulsions, Discrimination, racism, pogroms, inquisitions, holocausts that have been perpetrated against the Jews throughout history which seem to logically suggest that Jews are not very trustworthy of Gentiles and probably do not have a great opinion of them. You know, take the Holocaust. Six million Jews were massacred. And the world was silent, which silence is consent, it's complicity. And you go back throughout history. But is that really true? Do Jews hate Gentiles? Do they look down at them? When you look at anti-Semitic journals, magazines, newspapers, media, yeah, they sure have a lot to say about what they think Jews think about Gentiles, quoting different statements, distortions, and so on. But what is the truth? What is the truth? You may be quite surprised. So please join me. What Jews really think of Gentiles? And we can all come away with a new and fresh hope for a unified and loving future between all human beings, Jews and Gentiles, and all peoples of this world. Hi, this is Simon Jacobson, and we'll be speaking about what Jews really think of Gentiles. This program is dedicated in honor of Ronald Hoffman. With Jews in the headlines, in the news yet again, time and again, the war in Israel, the anti-Semitism on campuses and in the media, the rise of anti-Semitism yet again. Those big questions, those timeless questions, rise to the top. And that is, what is this obsession with Jews? Why are they hated by some? How far back does it go? What are the roots of anti-Semitism?
because Jews clearly are not neutral. People don't have neutral attitudes. There are haters, and there are people who love and respect the Jews, especially for all the gifts they brought to this world. But what is less discussed is the other way around. What do Jews really think about Gentiles? Consider, if you take history as a lesson, the Jews have been persecuted more than any other nation, and consistently, because they've also been here throughout all the ages and the millennia. Start from the Egyptian oppression and slavery and genocide in the Bible. The other nations, as they go to war with the Jewish people, Amalek, Moab, Ammon, the Ammonites, the Moabites, then it continues. And I'm just selecting a few throughout history. The Assyrian Empire conquering the ten tribes, exiling them. The Babylonian Empire destroying the first temple. Then you have the Persian Empire, the Greco-Syrian Empire, the Greeks. The Romans destroying the second temple and sending of the Jews in the long exile that we are still in today. And over and under and in between, you can throw in the Ottoman Empire and the Spanish Empire that expelled the Jews in 1492. Moving forward, they talk about Christianity, the Crusaders, the Inquisition, the pogroms, and finally, the dreaded Holocaust. So when you take that all together, what do you think? What would you, if you were a Jew, or if you were a victim of so much persecution, genocide, expulsions, discrimination, overtaxation, being barred from joining society, all the forms of anti-Semitism throughout history, the blood libels, what would be your attitude to Gentiles? The logical answer would be, the emotional answer would be, you can't stand them. You may not say it, but, I mean, look at the history. Take the Holocaust. So six million Jews were massacred, or annihilated. And most of the world was complicit in, in its silence. So what would, you be, what would be your attitude? We're not talking about a one-time exception. You can't trust the Gentiles, you'd argue. You fear them. You never know when they'll turn on you again. This is not to dismiss the righteous Gentiles, both during the Holocaust and other times in history that were kind, that were noble, that sacrificed themselves to help and save Jews. But overall, so you would think that the Jewish people would have developed a, collectively a profound distrust and being always on the defensive when it comes to the Gentile world. So it's not surprising, obviously, after World War II, as Israel being rebuilt and Jews flocking to it, building up a strong army was critical because we've never been able to protect ourselves. 
I remember meeting very uh, one of the most powerful, wealthy people in the world. And we were talking about charity and about Jews. He's not Jewish. And he asked me this question. He says, why did you find that many traditional Jews, their main charities go to their own organizations. He doesn't see them giving for fighting world hunger or disease, even though, look at how many hospitals and universities are named after Jewish philanthropists. But he was talking more the traditional traditional observant Jews. So I said to him, I think that they should be giving to global causes, but you have to remember, for thousands of years, no one else protected ourselves. No one, not just no one supported our schools and our communities, we were attacked. So many feel, we have to don't take care of ourselves, who will take care of us? And he actually was very touched by it. He said, that makes a lot of sense. I said, for years, we've built up strong defense mechanisms to protect ourselves, to build our own communities. We didn't want to be isolated, but we were isolated. We were targeted. We were victimized. I believe I said to him, that has to change, especially in a climate today. We'll talk about that more soon. So the logic would dictate that a people that have been persecuted, and remember, we... As much as the Jewish people have been persecuted, they're still here. It's one thing, there are nations, there are races that have been gone extinct. They were completely annihilated. The Jews, the attempts were to annihilate them, but it never happened. The full sense of the word. So we remain a minority of 14, 15 million people among 8 billion today. So you would think that it makes total sense that Jews should be in a state of constant fear and defensiveness, never knowing when the Gentile world will turn on them again. And there are indeed many that do feel that way. It's not a secret. Some may not speak about it, but we're speaking openly here. So that could be the attitude. But that is more something that's built up. That's not necessarily inherent to Jewish thinking. And that's what I want to address and you'll be, I think, surprised, even shocked to come to understand how Jews really look at the non-Jewish world. Now, there's also, I uh, call it the stereotype, call it the myth, but definitely you'll go to anti-Semitic websites, you'll see it all over the place, how they quote from the Talmud and from the Bible and from many places how Jews consider the non-Jewish world inferior. Now you have the concept, the chosen people. The Jews are the chosen people, chosen among all the nations by God. So how could that not build up a resentment by the non-Jewish world? You think that we're inferior. And some actually blame anti-Semitism on that, that the Jews are at fault. You decided you're superior, and we don't accept that. So what are all those statements? How does that work? Are, are they true? Those statements that talk about the non-Jews in a derogatory manner? And I know it's not so common for people to talk about this openly, especially if people really feel negatively about the, about the Gentile world. They don't necessarily want to 
publicize that. But I am talking about it directly because there are many, many distortions, myths and stereotypes that we must dispel when addressing this critical topic. And as I said, you will be surprised, I would even say shocked, when you hear the whole story. I mean, some have pointed out, just for the record, I don't know if this is uh, amusing or it's tragic, however you want to put it, that every nation in the world sees itself as being unique and special. The Japanese call themselves the land of the rising sun, that the sun first rises in Japan and then the rest of the world. Even though the sun rises everywhere, first wherever you are and then the rest of the world. But that's what they teach their children. The Chinese teach that they're the center of the universe. The United States talks about manifest destiny. And yet nobody hates the Japanese for that, or the Chinese, or the Americans. They may be hated for other reasons. But when you hear chosen people, suddenly that becomes a, a thorn in the side of those that hear that. So some point out, because they believe it to be true, with the Japanese, the Chinese, the Americans, or others, hey, you, don't want to, you want to believe that you're the center of the universe? Fine. We all know you're not. But the Jews, perhaps there's a subconscious or even a conscious concern that maybe it's true. Because look, the Jewish people have survived like no other nation. Small, fledgling nation. Continue to be here. Continue to dominate the headlines. The disproportionate amount of Nobel Prizes. Things that have already been pointed out, which I'm not here to um, really discuss, but it's critical in this conversation to bring it up. And you'll see the Christian right, for example, in the United States, mostly does not have an issue at all. They actually admire the Jewish people. How many people have I met from Oklahoma and from Texas, the churches across the United States, coming to the Western Wall, coming to celebrate in their words, why are you here? I've come to celebrate with the chosen people in the promised land. They actually take the Bible literally, like many others don't. They take it literally, and they believe it. And they don't find a problem with it. They find it as part of the mission of the world. So that's an interesting phenomenon of its own. So how do we make sense of all of this, and what do Jews really think of Gentiles? So I speak as a Jew. I'll tell you the inside story, the deeper secrets. No, and it's not the protocols of the elders of Zion, that mythical fabrication that anti-Semites in the 17th century, 18th century, whatever century it was, fabricated that the Jews have a conspiracy against the world which has influenced so many of the anti-Semites, including Hitler and Goebbels and those that before and after, and I don't want to mention them by name even. But there is a secret. And as I said, the secret will be quite disarming and surprising. So I think we need to go back to the beginning. The beginning is that fundamental Jewish thinking, and that's what's critical here, 
I'm not talking about a select Jew that you may find who may dislike a Gentile. He may also dislike a fellow Jew. There are people that don't like their own brothers and sisters. We're not discussing that. That's a personal thing, an emotional thing, and they may need therapy, they may need help, whatever it is. I'm talking about Jewish doctrine, Jewish thought. What's the standard? What's expected? So let's go back to the beginning. Open up a Bible, the Jewish Bible, and read. There's no mention of Jews until quite a few chapters into into the book of Genesis. There's a mention of a human being being created on the sixth day of creation. Adam and Eve, male and female, God created them. And he imbued them with a soul. It says, it's divine breath. Took earth from the ground. This is the first description of the human being. He took earth from the ground, shaped it into a body, God did, and then imbued it, breathed into it, into its nostrils, a breath of life. That's why neshama, which means soul, is the same letters as neshima, which means breath. Soul is the breath of God into the human being, created in the divine image, and charged with a mission, to serve and to protect this world that I've created, this garden. You are gardeners, God is saying to the human, to the first human being, to that male and female, to the man and woman, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. You are gardeners to protect, to serve, protect, cultivate, grow this garden. Make sure it blossoms. Weed it from outside forces, just like a good gardener. And turn this world into a beautiful place, even more beautiful than I created it. This is no commentaries, pure biblical text. Then Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge. And that created a dissonance, a spiritual dissonance between existence and its purpose. And that concealed the divine presence from from this world. But the job continues, the mission continues. Now it's your job to reveal. But unfortunately, generation after generation, things got worse before they got better. Then comes, and fast forward, a man called Noah. The world has become completely corrupt self-absorbed, and basically self-destructs in its self-interest. A bunch of self. Yeah. The ego, the arrogance, the greed, the divisiveness that ultimately leads to complete war and discord. But Noah, Ish Sadik, is a righteous person, so God saves him. Builds the ark, him and his family. And they begin to rebuild the world. That's ten, ten generations from Adam and Eve. Then go another ten generations, and the Bible tells us the birth of Abraham. Abraham later changed the name to Abraham. Father of all nations, he's called. A man who began to shine and warm and illuminate the world with a divine purpose, with a transcendent purpose. No, we're not a pagan world driven by its self-interest. We're a world that is serving a higher purpose, an accountability. We're gardeners. We're not just here to take care of ourselves. And of course, he was a threat to everyone around him. Now, mind you, what are all these people called at the time? Nations of the world. I mean, Adam and Eve were two people, but they had children, and their children had children. And these children began to transmigrate as they left the Garden of Eden, more or less southeastern modern-day Iraq, 
the Mesopotamian value, that whole area, the Middle East, and civilization continued to grow. These are the nations of the world. Goiha Aritz is the expression in the Bible. The nations of the world. In many ways, that's being the nation. A goy. You say a goy means a nation. The nations of the world. That's a very neutral term. But you don't yet have the concept of Jew, of Jewish people. You have an Abraham who chose a path, and as he chooses, chooses his path, God responds. So the first choice God makes when you say chosen, did he choose Abraham or did Abraham choose God? You can say both are true. As Abraham showed receptivity to a higher reality, that higher reality emerged in his life. He committed his life to do charity, virtue, kindness, compassion, and began a new path that we're here not just to serve our needs. So among the nations of the world, here's a man and a woman, Abraham and Sarah, who build a family and a legacy with a mandate to do what? To bring light into this world. The original mission given to Adam and Eve that the rest of the nations of the world wandered away from. So now you have two paths. We'll call it the Goyesha path, you can call it the Gentile path, which was a pagan path at the time. And you have what would become the Jewish path. But you see here, it's not even Jew by birth. Abraham was born to a pagan father and mother, into a pagan society. So what is it? He chose. But his children and grandchildren, when they showed that commitment, finally were told, at the end of the book of Genesis, well, let's, before we get to the end, let's go. So they had a son called Isaac, who in turn had a son called Esau and Jacob, both born to the same parent, twin brothers. But Esau was a warrior. And he chose a different path. Jacob continued the path of Abraham and Isaac. And then Jacob's name is turned into the first time we hear the name Jew, Yisrael. By whom? By actually his archenemy's minister, angel, ministering angel. The angel of Esau wrestles with Jacob, which represents the wrestling of a pagan warrior society. Because Esau was a warrior, a hunter. And the spiritual and virtuous Jacob, wholesome Jacob, they wrestle. And when he sees he cannot prevail over Jacob, ultimately he displaces his hip, but then Jacob says, if you want me to let you go, I need you to give me a blessing. And he blesses him, your name shall be Israel. Who named the Jew? The Gentile. The angel that represented the Gentile. I say Gentile, because then nobody, there was no such concept of a legal Jew or Jewish people, which we'll talk about shortly as well. So now Jacob is called Yisrael. So when you think of the country called Israel, it's all based on that name. Yisrael in Hebrew is Israel. He was named Israel. So he had two names now, Jacob and Israel. He in turn had the 12 tribes and Dina, his daughter. They continued to perpetuate this legacy of tzedakah, mishpat, of charity and virtue and kindness. And this became their philosophy. It became their way of life. And I say philosophy, I don't just mean in the books. They lived by it. That became their standard. And they were not liked for it. They were disliked because they stood out. They were nonconformists. They wouldn't go by 
the rules of the powers that be. And you know, when people are in control, establishment, they're threatened by anyone that does it a different way. That's the roots of the whole story. So now you have the nations of the world, you have the Jewish people, a Jewish people that have not yet been formalized as Jewish people, by choice they've chosen the godly path. And the lines were pretty clear there. No one else chose the path of God, they chose their own. They were their own gods. The pharaohs were gods in their own eyes. The other kings and monarchs were gods in their own eyes, or closer to God. And they were threatened by this concept of a god. When Moses comes to Pharaoh in Egypt, God, he says to Moses, I don't know your God. I don't recognize this God. I'm God. I have a river here. I've created this river is the irrigates the land. So here you have the pit. Of, so it's really, at this point, not racial. It's actually ideological. The Jewish people are now suffering and oppressed. The end of the book of Genesis concludes and the book of Exodus begins. They are enslaved by their hosts. They came to Egypt to find relief from the famine and they end up being enslaved by them. I'm not going into all the details. They had 210 years of sustained discrimination. The first institutionalized slavery to the point that anyone that deals with slaves and freedom always associates with the story of Exodus. The founding fathers saw themselves as America coming to the promised land after their slavery. The blacks, as they were freed and emancipated, all felt that way. So this is the stage of this terrible slavery. And the Jews are a threat. And here we do call them Jews, but they're not yet legally Jews. They're still part of the nations of the world. They've chosen a path of transcendence versus a path of selfish, fulfilling your own, a path of survival, that's called. Serving your own needs instead of serving a higher calling. And then when they come out of Egypt, like all suffering, it refined them. It caused them to thrive and flourish even more so. And that's when the Bible tells us that God says, you paid the price. Not only were you committed to the path of Abraham, of justice, of virtue, but you have also now paid a heavy price. That forged you into an eternal nation. You've become now a truly free people. Free, not just from shackles and from not being in behind bars, psychologically free, emotionally free, spiritually free, you have made transcendence part and parcel of your very DNA, of your very inherent to your very personality. And that's when God says, I choose you now. At Matan Torah, at Sinai, and gives them the official mandate called the Torah. But let's continue here. It doesn't stop there. This was not discarding or disregarding what happens with the nations of the world. They were still all children of Adam and Eve, all created in the divine image. We didn't give up on them. They're still children of Abraham. Ishmael is the son of Abraham. Esau is the son of Isaac. So fine, they didn't choose the path that Jacob chose and Isaac chose and their children. But what happens? So we're told, interestingly, that God presents the Torah his book of ethics and morals, his spiritual blueprint for life of how to live a transcendent life, to live up to your true purpose, not to your own needs, he offered it to the children of Yishmael and the children of Esau. 
those very Gentiles, those very nations that did not follow entirely, at least, the path of their parents, God at Mount Sinai, he doesn't forget them. He offers it to them. And what happens? They reject it. They look in the Torah. Do not steal. Do not kill. Do not be sexually um, immoral. They couldn't accept it. They were not ready for it. So then God goes to the Jewish people and said, you've paid the price here. I'm giving you the Torah. And the Jewish people accepted because they've already accepted it in principle. But we still don't forget the other nations. The purpose of Sinai was not just to create and forge a relationship, a marriage between God and the Jews. It was to forge a marriage between heaven and earth that these Jewish people are not just here to take care of themselves and serve the higher calling, but to bring light, to be a light onto nations and to illuminate all nations of the world with that very message. So it's actually the exact opposite. The Jewish people always knew that their job was not to be exclusionary, not to insulate themselves. Insulate when you have to protect yourself. Insulate. Obviously, a child, when you're educating a child, there's a certain element of, of protection, and you don't just let the child go out into the streets. You want to influence the child, educate the child. But ultimately, the goal is to be a light unto nations, to bring this message of Sinai, to bring the message of Abraham to every human being on earth, each one created in the divine image. That is what Judaism teaches. Let's move forward a bit more, and then we'll go back to our initial question. So history continues to unfold. The Jewish people grow, spend 40 years in the wilderness, as the Bible continues, and they encounter their enemies, those that don't want them to come back to their own land, promised land, because they were away. So all kinds of others, occupiers, displaced them. They didn't want the Jews back. They were threatened by them. The story of Bullock, the story of Bilam, the stories that happened during these 40 years that finally come at the end of the Bible, end of the five books, they come to the east bank of the River Jordan. And then in the book of Joshua, they ultimately enter after Moses' death. So the people have now become a nation and they pay prices and they were shaped and forged through pain as well, becoming a mighty nation. But above all, they have an ideology that they embrace and they know that ultimately it's meant to every human being on earth to embrace. But they're faced with people who are not just not ready to embrace the path of justice, of love, of charity. You're dealing with nations who are busy, whoever the monarch was at the time, controlled. There may have been some more benevolent than others. So the Jews were isolated, not by choice. They would have wished that they could bring this message and that the whole world would embrace the message of God, of a true God, not, idol- a, a, a de- not false deities and pagan beliefs. But ultimately what happens? The children of Esau, Edom in Hebrew, or we call Rome, the Western world, Christianity is born. And it is a Jew that Christianity is based on. And they begin to embrace the pagan Western Roman world embraces at least the fundamental principles, the central principles of Judaism in their own way. And not everything we may agree with, but they begin to embrace it's no longer just pagan self-worship. It's connected to some higher 
calling. And seven centuries later, six centuries later, the pagan Arab world, the children of Yishmael, embrace through Islam a god, Allah. So ultimately, the children of Esav and the children of Yishmael embrace the teachings of Abraham, the teachings of Torah, those universal teachings that they rejected back at Sinai, but their grandparents, their early ancestors, namely Yishmael and Isaac, Yishmael and Esav, growing up in the homes of Abraham and Isaac, Isaac respectively, taught. So what you have here is in essence a history of conflict. But it's more than just a Jewish people and a Gentile world. It's two ways of looking at the universe. Two ways of looking at the universe. Is it a garden for you to garden and bring closer and create a home for God in this world? Or are you here to serve yourself? And in time, slowly that message that you're here to serve a higher purpose became mainstream. And 250 years ago, only 250 years ago is the first time institutionalized freedom in the country called the United States of America that the Founding Fathers based on, as Michael Novak points out on, in his book On Two Wings, the book of the Hebrew Republic and other books, based on what? Torah metaphysics. Essentially embracing these teachings that Abraham taught that the Jewish people always knew were meant for the entire world to embrace. But in the process, heavy, heavy prices were paid. You're dealing with the persecutions, the animosities, the, the, bar, the barbarism at the hands of the Christians, at the hands before that at pagans, and afterwards, many of them I mentioned earlier. I'm not here to discuss those battles right now. I've discussed at other times. What were they fighting over? But at least on a cosmic level, spiritual level, psychological level, it was a war of two ways of looking at life. Is it driven by the, the Freudian id, the Darwinian social Darwin, Darwinism of survival of the fittest? Or is it driven by a transcendent calling? And ultimately the transcendent calling became part of the conversation of the nations of the world as well. So really, you would really call it, it's not so much Jew versus Gentile in those wars. It's more Jewishness versus Gentileness. What does that mean? Two different philosophies. Because unfortunately, you could have a Jewish person who becomes very materialistic and very selfish. Then, he's, then he has abandoned and betrayed his own destiny, his own calling. And you have a non-Jewish person who could be very so-called Jewish, Jewish at some point in philosophy and thinking that I'm here to serve a higher purpose. As you find throughout history, philosophers and thinkers among the, the, the Gentiles of the world, nations of the world, that were extremely transcendent. You find it in the Far East, whether it's in Buddhism or in others. But we're talking about as movements go, as nations go. So now, fast forward. We're here now in the 21st centuries, 250 years since the United States became a country. Many other countries have embraced similar values. It's become really the predominant perspective on life. There are a few countries, Freedom House lists the countries that are considered totally free, those that are semi-free, and those that are still under the control of a dictator. 
But you see, the trajectory is that freedom is prevailing. More and more countries in the world. So essentially the vision of Abraham, the vision of God, I should say, through Abraham and through others that came and through his, through his successors and his, and his family, ultimately affected the world. So the Jewish vision and hope that the world would embrace the, the mandate that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden would be fulfilled, was actually fulfilled and continues to be fulfilled. It's not perfect. As we see, there is anti-Semitism, there's other forms of hatred, there's violence, there's war. But that's how Jews always, that's what they kept them together. So it wasn't an attitude to go back to the question now, what Jews really think of Gentiles? So obviously there's an element of the fears of the past, the defensiveness, the other aspects that have caused us, frankly, legitimately to be concerned. And that's where you have to lock your doors. You need security in synagogues and other Jewish centers. And unfortunately, this racism also spills over to other communities and other races outside of Judaism, other minorities, distrust. But the standard always remained that even when we had to tremble, even when we were being killed by our enemies, we never lost sight to the hope that even my enemy my ultimate goal is that you become, not just don't kill me, that you fulfill God's wishes in you. And we cry when we see Nazis, and we see a Hamas, and when we see people who perpetrate the worst possible atrocities against other human beings. We cry. We cry for them. That here is a human being created by God in the divine image, with a soul, and completely betraying that soul in the worst possible way. When the Egyptians who oppressed the Jews in the worst possible way were drowning in the Red Sea. Because they would not, they refused to stop pursuing the Jews. Even when they let them go, they had regrets. So you think they deserve it, they were like Nazis. And the angels begin singing praise. God says, my creations are drowning, are, being, are dying, and you're singing praise? Now, obviously, they deserved it. But we don't sing praise when our enemies fall. We sing praise that we were saved. But we wish it never came to that. We wish our worst enemies would have lived up to their calling. But that doesn't mean we're naive. If they indeed show that they're enemies, we will fight what we have to do. It's not turning the other cheek and naively thinking, oh, it's all divine. They're all divine. No, an enemy needs to be addressed properly. And there are people sitting in prisons right now, and there are people who have been killed in wars, deservedly so, even though they had souls, and they have a soul while they're sitting in prison, and they're criminals, because their soul is trapped within them, and they become a destructive force, destructive and dangerous to others, a threat to others, and a threat to themselves. But at the same time, our hope is not just eradicating evil. Our hope is that the evil should be disappear. There's an expression, may the sins be erased, but not the sinners. Unless there's no choice, of course, because the sinners, the sins have consumed the sinner. And then we pray that they should live up to the calling. And we celebrate when they do. We're not carrying grudges and, 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 um, and vengeance in our hearts. Of course, there's a feeling of that when you see the blood, your blood boiling feelings when you see behavior that we saw on October 7th, or for that matter, during the Holocaust. But we channel that anger into building a better world. 
That's what Jews really, really believe in the depths of their hearts. And all the statements you'll find in the Talmud and others that seem to suggest derogatory, that derogatory is about goyishkeit, not about the individual, about approach, a pagan approach, a selfish approach, an idolatrous approach. Serve me. Bow to me, Haman said. So it's an approach to life that was personified throughout most of history by the nations of the world. But if the nations of the world embrace God, it's a whole different story. So even when you read the last prayer in the, in the, in the services, in the tefillah, where it talks about that we feel special because we serve God and they serve folly, nonsense, then it continues on and says, but then all the nations of the world will be transformed. That was always the goal. And that's why on holiday Sukkot, for example, we pray for the nations. And during the temple, we brought offerings that correspond to the 70 nations of the world, 70 bulls corresponding to them. And the Medrash says that if the nations of, world, of the world knew the blessings that come to them through the Jewish people, through the land of Israel, the holy land of Israel, through the holy temple, instead of attacking Jews, they would surround it with legions to protect it because of the blessings they received from there. Like God told Abraham, those that will bless you shall be blessed. And you see today millions of non-Jews, of Gentiles, that believe that and embrace it. There's still work to be done. And that's what our deepest hope is. Even as we fight a war with, with, with sworn enemies who say we want to annihilate all of you, and they've proven it in their actions, we still hold that belief. Even as we fight them and, and we'll do everything possible to protect ourselves from them. That's what a Jew really believes. So what is derogatory is about the choice of living a pagan life. The word is not really derogatory. Any negative terms is about the goyishkeit, about that pagan philosophy and thinking, which anyone, unfortunately, can choose that, bad, that negative path, destructive path. So the goal is not to make everyone Jewish either. That's the beauty here. God created you as you are. As a Gentile, as a non-Jew, serve God in the best possible way. It says, righteous Gentile has a place in the world to come. You have an eternal soul. You have a place in the future of the world. When the world, when the Messiah comes, the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea, referring to the entire world, all the nations of the world. All the nations will be transformed and speak each in their diverse way, but serve one God. This house, the house of the temple will be a house of prayer for all nations. On and on and on, verses like that. How do you reconcile that with the seemingly negative terms about non-Jewish beliefs? Because the difference is, we're talking here about the philosophies, the ideologies of Goyeshkeit, of paganism. But individuals choose another path and they become righteous Gentiles. And as such, serve God. And we're not looking to convert anyone to Judaism. You are who you have to, you don't have to be Jewish to serve God and to live up to your highest destiny. Live up to the divine image that you are, as you are. That's why you actually dissuade someone from converting. But we want everyone to embrace not the becoming Jewish, but the Jewishness of the Torah, which is the universal, the universal transcendence for all nations of the world. So Goyishkeit, Yiddishkeit, meaning 
the Jewish, the, the Judaism as a universal moral, ethical, transcendent blueprint for life. That's how the Jew looks at the non-Jew. Now, you may meet a Jew who will tell you or curse out the Gentiles after everything we have experienced. But again, that's on a personal level, and you can't blame a person like that. But that's not the standard of what the Judaism wants of us. We want, it wants to transform that very dark world that did attack us, that did victimize us, that did brutalize us, that they should come to discover their divine calling, their divine image. Now this is a message, a critical message for all of us to know, to teach. I'm very gratified to have shared this with you because it's something that I find that most people make many mistakes about and are not aware of what the real message is. So may it come the day, and may we already have come the day in so many ways, that the nations of the world shall unite in that sense. Diverse nations, each with their own ancestry, their own culture, but all directed toward a transcendent mission of being gardeners and turning this material world into a home, into a garden, a divine garden. May we be blessed with that, with total world peace, the end to the nightmare going on in Israel and Gaza, with a world, a messianic world, a world where there'll be no longer evil and destruction, because the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. And all the nations of the world will embrace that transcendent divine knowledge. Thank you so much. This has been Simon Jacobson. Meaningfullife.com is our website, our repository of this content and all other content, a wide array of materials covering the entire spectrum of life to help us discover this divine mission that each of us has in our own way. So please check it out. Please subscribe. Subscribe to our weekly emails. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please share this with others if you find it meaningful. And I'd love to hear feedback, comments, thoughts, questions, suggestions. Be blessed and live up to your divine image. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com slash donate.